Jenny um, to have the song that we did today before um, the sermon, and we'll do it again next week as well. And I'm just going to read a few of these lyrics as our prayer this morning. So let's bow our heads and we can pray together. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. We pray that you would take your truth, you plant it deep in us and shape and fashion us in your likeness. That the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and in our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts, test our attitudes. In the radiance of your purity, cause our faith to rise and our eyes to see your majestic love and your authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And may we, by grace... Stand on your promises. And may we by faith walk as you walk with us. And so speak, O Lord, until this church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Amen. Isn't that powerful? The danger of good music is that you forget the words. It becomes, you just, you're familiar And I think sometimes to hear it like that is just so much more powerful. And it's our prayer. It's our prayer today that the word will be received. I'm very aware that when we come to teach in husbands and wives, there's a lot that's countercultural. My my concern and the burden upon me as I speak to wives today, um, and concerning wives today, because I think it affects us all, is not the countercultural issue of submission. I think that's something that hopefully that we have dealt with previously and we, did, we talked about it last time. It's rather more that Peter is dealing with submission in a very difficult context. Everything that we've seen in these chapters before us, um, as he's built his way through the book, he, he, he began, I mean, if we go right, right back, if you go back to chapter one, the first half of chapter one, he basically says, look at this stunning work that God has done for you. Look at this work of salvation. Look at what he has done to redeem you. And look at what you have. Look at the hope that you have for glory in the future. Look at the assurances that you have. The inheritance you have. Something that can never be taken away. See what God has done. And in light of that, he goes on to talk about how we should live. And and it's really summed up in the statement, Be holy as I am holy. And that's so central to everything we've seen in 1 Peter. That God is a holy God. God is a God who is distinct. 
He is not like other gods. He's not like other people. He doesn't think as we think. He doesn't operate as we operate. He is completely distinct and unlike anyone and anything else. He is creator and everything else is creation. God is holy and God is distinct. And therefore, the command upon us is for us to be distinct too. We're going to live lives that are distinct from other people. Now, when we come to the specifics of our walk, in 1 Peter there is something that I said to you many weeks now, he is building up to, we're going to come to it at the end of chapter 3, he's building up and he's building up, and what he's saying is, is we need to be so holy and so distinct that people come up to us and say, what you're doing, how you're living, the way you're practicing your life makes no sense to me at all. Why are you being like that? Why, when you're being persecuted, are you loving this person? Why, when you're being treated badly, are you being patient with this person? What is going on? And then we get a chance to respond and say, let me tell you about the hope I have in my heart. Let me tell you what my God has done for me, where I'm going, what he has saved in heaven for me, and all the glory that is to come. And momentary light suffering in this world now is nothing compared to the glory that is to come. That's, that's our context, right? And so, with all of that in mind, we come to chapter 2, and he says, submit to authorities. He says, servants, submit to your masters. And we talked about the various connotations of how that could be applied in our society today and what have you. But he's talking about submission to various authorities. And then, because it is what we call a chiastic structure, if you're not a theologian, it means a, a triple-decker sandwich, perhaps, that you've got lots of layers of bread, and right there in the middle is the central patty. The, cent the center filling of your sandwich, that's what matters. And so we have submission, submission, suffering of Christ, submission, submission. And there in the middle is the focus that Jesus Christ, that he submitted. He submitted and he trusted God. And there he was being persecuted, there he was going to the cross, and he was being treated shamefully by those he had created. And he did not turn around to them and say, you have no idea the judgment that is coming to you which he could have done, and it would have been true. But he didn't deceive them, he didn't revile them, he didn't threaten them. What he did is this. He trusted the Father. He said, I'm going to walk in obedience and trust my Father because he judges justly. Likewise, wives. You can't start with likewise, likewise wives without all of that context. You, you can't. You simply can't. Because when we come to a passage like this, and I know I've taught it before and I've been in church for decades, what happens is that immediately there are excuses, there are wrigglings, and there are people that say, yes, but in my situation... I'm not a wife. I'm a guy, and I don't claim to fully understand every uh, difficulty that wives face. My job is very simple. It's to teach the text. And I won't apologize for that. 
But suffice to say that the context of this, likewise, is Jesus Christ going to the cross, being scourged so badly that his back is ripped apart and flesh and muscle and bone is exposed. He cannot physically carry his cross and he goes to the cross and he dies and in all of that he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Likewise, wives. That's our context. And I said to you last time, I want to approach this um, broadly speaking, at least to some degree, with the, the ABCs, the alphabet of lament that I preached a few months back as a structure. And it's always good to remind you that. I think it's a helpful structure. Um, because we are dealing with people who are likewise in a similar situation. We're dealing here not with a wife who is a happy wife. We're not dealing here with a wife who is, has a husband who, who she would not change for the entire world and is the most wonderful husband on the face of the earth. We're dealing with wives who are suffering. We're dealing with wives who are struggling and going to their cross. And by the way, guys, that's your wife on a regular basis, no matter how good you are. Because we're sinners. And that's how it is. And so, the A of the alphabet of lamenting is to acknowledge. There is nothing I'm going to say today that somehow means that wives need to put up and shut up and can't express their hurt and their pain and their suffering. If anything I say today suggests to you that that is what I'm saying out of context, then put it back into context and I'm making you the context now. There is biblically, for everyone who suffers, a biblical, not just allowance, but a biblical necessity to acknowledge your pain and your suffering before a holy God. Do we get that? I hope we do. And pain is real. And I have said to you before, I loathe in our church culture, the fact that we have, you know, this people can't be victims, and you know, someone's the black. You know, everybody in this room is a victim to some degree, and everybody in this room is to blame to some degree, because we're sinners, and our sins are done by us and against us, and to the degree to which we suffer, we get to acknowledge our pain. If you don't believe me, read the Psalms. You're going to see it again and again and again and again and again. So we acknowledge our pain. And in that regard, I want to say one other thing, which is sad that I have to say, but I do in this day and age, and, and that is this. Well, I want to just say something very briefly, because obviously I've got to keep going through a text, but I, I need to say something about abuse before we begin, just again for context, okay? I want to say two things to strike, a, three things to strike a balance on this whole issue. Firstly, this. I am not saying anything today, again, context, that would suggest that if a wife is being physically abused by her husband, if you are one of those wives who has to say, oh, I fell down the stairs or what have you, that I am not saying in any way, shape or form that you should continue to remain in a place of harm. I am well aware that people are often unknowing to others in that situation. And I know that often wives don't want 
to have help in that situation because they fear the breaking down of everything that they know. On that point, I want to say this. We have already seen in chapter 2 that we submit to authorities. And there are laws in this land, thank God. The government, for all of its failings, is supposed to reward the good and punish the evil. And in some regards, they do that. And there is a place for the authorities when there are crimes that happen. If someone is in a situation where they don't want to go to those authorities, but they know that something needs to happen, we as a church are here to act as that middle ground and to help be the first step in that process. We are keen to help anybody who needs help. So let me just really be clear on that. Okay? The other side of that coin is... Those laws and that help did not exist to the people to whom Peter is writing. In other words, the fact that uh, someone does not have to remain in a physically abusive relationship may not have been something that was available to women for the majority of history. And so the reality of this text to people in those situations is even more challenging. The other side of the coin altogether is simply this. That if you read every article that comes up on your social media feed and every definition of an abusive marriage that exists, then every single one of you has been in an abusive marriage who is marriage and every single one of you has been both the abuser and the, the one being abused. The term is used so loosely these days that basically, you know, we're kind of becoming a bit like the Pharisees who kind of thought that, uh, as we saw last week, that the burning of the toast was, was somehow this, this shame that would lead to divorce, you know? It was, oh, how could she do such a thing, you know? And I think we need to be careful. Every single one of us is going to be treated badly by their spouse at some point. Some occasionally and mildly, some more severely and consistently. And what we're dealing with today is likewise. We're dealing with how we behave in the midst of suffering. So yes, there are avenues for protection through legal authorities and uh, they exist and we're grateful for them. But do not try and escape the broad picture that Peter is painting here. And the people again to whom he was writing may not have had that kind of escape. That's the acknowledge, the B and the C of the alphabet of lament is behold, behold God. There isn't a place in the Psalms for saying, look at the state I'm in and not looking at the state that God is in. That's called grumbling. That's not called lamenting. We need to look at God and we need to cry out to him. Remember, and this should be center in our minds today, chapter 2 and verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God the Father will judge justly. God the Father will judge justly. God your father will judge justly. You place your trust in him. That won't be the last time today I say that. 
And then that leads us to D in the alphabet of lament. We acknowledge our pain. We look at who God is. He is sovereign. He is good. He can be trusted. And so we cry out to him. And then D, we do what's right. We do what he commands. We do what he commands with the right heart, with the right attitude, and we do it for him and for his sake. We have to do. There is no acknowledging of pain, beholding of God, crying out to God, and then doing what we want to do. There is simply the acknowledging of pain, beholding of God, crying out to him, and then because of who he is, because of whom we beheld, we trust him and we do what he says. What does he say to do for wives who struggle and who suffer? Let's look at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Okay. The broad picture here is simply this. That when Paul says in Ephesians, for wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to love their wives, and by the way, that's going to be, I think, just as difficult for husbands next week. But he says here very clearly the same thing, Peter, as Paul does. Wives submit, the husband doesn't obey, wives submit. Now, the expression for the husbands here. They do not obey the word. Some people will point out that whenever Peter speaks of the word, he in his, in his letter is, is usually referring to the gospel. And some people will say, well, here it's referring to unbelieving husbands. Unbelieving husbands are the ones who haven't received the gospel. They do not obey the word. But I think that what Peter's doing here is that uh, Peter is deliberately using an expression that would apply to unbelieving husbands who've rejected the gospel outright, but would also apply to husbands who aren't living according to the word. Now, if you're a guy, I hope you acknowledge and accept that there are days when you don't live according to the word. There are times when the Bible's command to be gentle, to be kind, to be humble, to be patient that you disobey those commands. And so, I think that this is a lovely expression which kind of covers all of our bases. It's speaking to wives whose husbands are not doing what God tells them to do. One of the things that uh, you sometimes come across is that um, you know, wives should submit to their husbands when the husband is obedient to God. But if the husband is saying something and he's not, you know, he's not being obedient to God, well then somehow that authority disappears. Peter just, just destroys that whole argument. If the husband is living an ungodly life, if the husband is going out drinking, if the husband is harsh with his tongue, if the husband is living a lifestyle that is incompatible with Christian living, then wives, be subject to, submit to your husbands. The text couldn't be clearer. Now again, just by way of context, what we did last week, the submission to husbands is not because the husbands are better. Quite frankly, as I look out amongst you, we're often not, are we guys? Let's be frank. We're not often better. And 
Wives don't submit because husbands are better. Wives don't submit because they're lesser in any way, shape, or form. We'll talk about weaker vessel next week. We'll come to that. But wives, as we'll see next time as well, are co-heirs of grace. They are an equal value before God. And submission is simply an expression of the relationship between Christ and the church. We spoke about that last time. You'll have to reference last week's sermon. But the act of submission here, as we're going to see very, very clearly in a moment, the act of submission is something that you do because of how you feel about God and not how you feel about your husband. Let's be absolutely clear on this point. If you do not do what Peter says here, whether it's submitting, whether it's the other things that follow with it, if you do not do these things, it says nothing about your husband. It only speaks of your view of God. What you think about God is seen most clearly, ladies, in what happens when your husband is disobedient to the word. So if your husband has a bad day, (coughs) week, (coughs) month, (laughs) 10 years, um, if your husband has a bad period, does something wrong, then this is, in a sense, your opportunity to say, now I get to see what I think about God. Now I get to see my faith in action. Now I get to see how much I value God. Now I get to see how much I trust God. And so... Wives are to continue in the state that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, even in a situation such as this, even when some do not obey the word. That they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Pure. Be holy, therefore, as I am holy. Distinct. Respectful is, uh, so the pure, let's be going from the back here, the conduct, the life, the way you're going to live is going to be pure, holy, distinct, without sin. It's going to be respectful. That is, the word respect is used in Ephesians 5, for wives respect your husbands. It is an acknowledgement of the husband's position of authority. That's what respectful is referring to. And The main point here is this, that they don't obey the word, and there's a play on words here, they may be, not definitively, but they may be one without a word by your conduct. What did Jesus do when he suffered? He said nothing deceitful, he did not revile, And he did not threaten. Now, I am not applying this solely to wives. I will be applying all three points next week to husbands. Because it's the same context. Likewise, husbands. Okay? But let's be very clear on this. When your husband is disobedient to the word, when he treats you badly, then you are to still submit to him. And you are to do so without saying anything deceitful. Any sentence that begins with you always, you never, 
is normally inaccurate to some degree. We should try and avoid that, men and women. No deceit, no exaggeration. Sometimes when we, when we are in conflict, words that come out of our mouths have more to do with the emotions that we're feeling than they do to have to do with actual truth and facts. And that is a sin. No deceit. No reviling. That means nothing negative, even if it is true. Gosh, how hard is that? That's brutally hard. This is Philippians 4. We saw this in Philippians. The context of that expression that, that Paul says in Philippians 4. I'm good, don't have to turn. I'm going to read it to you really quickly, okay? He says this um, in, in Ephesians 4. It's immediately in the context of Euodia and Syntyche, loving one another, having the same mind, the same mind as Christ, considering the other one more important than themselves. Trusting God to lift them up if they humble themselves. And in that context, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, any excellence at all, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. That is not a passage in the context of what you watch or what you read or you know, what show you watch on Netflix, though it may have implications. It is in the context of conflict. When your husband is a dirtbag, find something excellent. Find something worthy. Focus on something that is true. Ah, oh, he really isn't the... No, no, not, not that kind of truth. True and uplifting. Something that is honorable. Something that is lovely. Something that is commendable. How, how hard is it when we're treated badly to look at the person who's treated us badly and say... God, find me something positive to commend this person for. That's brutally hard. Is it not? I hope you husbands are getting convicted too. You're getting this next week. But you can see so much of this applies both ways. When someone hurts you, everything with you... Everything within you, every instinct within you wants to revile back. Will you say this about me? Well, what about this about you? And yet, that's not being holy. That's not being distinct. The call, the command, is to say, Father, what is there that is excellent? What is there that's lovely? What is there that is commendable? That's radical Christianity, right there, right there. And, and ladies, let me just say this before I, I, I'm kind of running on time here, but let, let me just say this. Genesis 3.16 says, wives, this is following the fall into sin, wives, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. The same expression is used in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, um, 
uh, I should, I've got it marked, I'll turn there really briefly. But in Genesis 4, with Cain and Abel, there is this expression, um, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. The expression, its desire is for you, is a picture of sin waiting to pounce. And its desire is for you. That's the picture being painted with the wife. It's as if, ladies that the fall has hired, hardwired you to not submit. That's brutal, isn't it? That here you are being told to do the very thing that you are particularly hire, hardwired not to be able to do. Why? Because God loves you so much. And this will teach you to trust him like nothing else. And it's going to be so hard to not revile, to have no deceit, and not to threaten. Now, I know threatening with men to women can look different from women to men, but there is never, ever a time to mention the D word. Divorces should not be a threat. Walking out should not be a threat. Taking the kids should not be a threat. Punishing by... Silence, punishing by lack of carnal relations, punishing by any means. It is there that sin has crouched. The desire to rule over the husband is there. And it's trying to be done in a variety of different ways. And yet there's no reviling, no threatening, no deceit, no nothing. There is not a word. Now, in this point, let me say something. Um, is this text, no matter what I think, well, is this text suggesting that a woman, when she's mistreated, should suffer in silence and never raise her voice? No, I don't believe it is. The context here is saying, you are not going to win him with your words, you're going to win him with your conduct. That's what the text is saying. We know from elsewhere in scripture that if someone sins against you, that you can go to them and present their sin. I do not believe that this text means that if a husband sins against his wife, that the wife has no grounds to go to the husband and say, you're sinning against me. But what I do think is that when any person in a relationship has to go to another and say, you've sinned against me, they need to do so with kindness, with gentleness, with humility, with patience. I'm just quoting Ephesians 4 here. They need to do it in that way. They need to do it in a way that where their conduct in that speech is consistent with what Paul is saying, uh, Peter is saying here. So, so the winning of the husband, if it's going to happen, it's not going to happen with a word. That means, wives, your desire to change your husband... Your desire is for him, Genesis 3. That desire to change your husband, if there's one thing you can take away from this sermon, take this away. Your desire to change your husband is an ungodly desire. But hold on a second. I want him to be godly. Isn't that good? Yes, it's wonderful. Pray that God does it. 
your desire for you to change him is ungodly. Let's be really clear about that. And there are so many ways in which women will often try and do this that I'm not even going to bother to try and list them, and I'm going to simply trust the Holy Spirit to convict you of what your ways are. But rather, he says, it's not done with words, but with conduct. This is why we have in the Old Testament passages like Proverbs 21. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. That's chapter 21 and verse 9. Chapter 21 and verse 19. It's better to live in a desert island than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Now these passages, you know, are often like they sound humorous to us. But the reality is this. That when a wife tries to, with her words, with manipulation, with punishing, with, with um, anger, with, with reviling, with threatening, with deceit, with anything. When women with their words try and change their husbands. And by the way, sometimes the opposite of speaking, the silent treatment is as much a part of this whole thing that he's condemning here as well. When there is this attempt to change the husband, to take control over the husband, then that is the opposite of the respectful conduct. It's not recognizing their role in that. God's role is to change the husband, and the wife's role is to submit to the husband. Now, I understand there'll be times when the husband will command something. If the husband says, I want you to be the getaway driver when I rob the bank tomorrow, no one is suggesting that you do that. There is a higher authority, it's God. That's fine. Okay? But just because you consider something to be petty, something to be an area where he shouldn't be giving you instructions, doesn't mean that you don't submit. We... We will see next time, it's not for husbands to lord over their wives. It's not for husbands to determine, you know, how many sides of their, you know, to what degree their toast is buttered and to what clothes they'll wear and to, to you know, and, and to have control over their, of their lives. But if you get a husband who does that, he's then a bad husband. And what do we do with bad husbands? Submit. And so we have this situation where the wives are not going to try and use their words. They're not going to, you know, create this miserable environment where they're trying to change and they're trying to change. And not just miserable for their husband, but miserable for them. Because if you want to change your husband, trying to manipulate and wrangle and make it happen is the last way to make it happen. Because everything instinctively in the man is going to rise up against that. And so... That's why Peter says not to do it. Now, look at verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that you wear. Okay, three things here. Hair, haircuts, jewelry, clothing. Okay? Now, you could take verse 3 completely out of context. Do not let your adorning be external. There are some legalists who will say, oh, you're wearing makeup, you've got jewelry on, like that's a bad thing. Well, I'm looking out on you now, and I can say pretty much categorically, every woman here is wearing clothing. And we're thankful for that. Okay? 
So this is not condemning all of those things per se, clearly, all right? What it's doing is it's saying, don't let this be the thing that makes you look beautiful. If you think, I know there's all this joking around and women think, you know, I'll put on that nice dress and then it'll do what I want, you know? Okay, maybe sometimes we're that shallow. But the reality is, is that a beautiful woman with a bad heart is not something that a husband wants to be in a relationship with. It's not someone a husband's going to want to entrust himself to. It's not someone a husband is going to be wanting to love. Now, he's got to love anyway. We're going to come to that next week. This, we're dealing with this passage, though, this week. But what it's saying is this. And again, what is the context? The context is that they may be one without a word. And this is how. This is how, if you really want to change your husband, this is how you're going to do it. You're not going to put on your nice dress. You're not going to put on your makeup. You're not going to fluff yourself up so that you can then say, you know, darling, that conversation we're going to have about, you know, that's not what you're going to do. What you're going to do is this. But, verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty. Wouldn't it be great if your beauty was imperishable? It's not. People spend ridiculous sums of money in this country, in this state, probably more than most states, on making themselves look younger than they are. I won't say anything more on that. Other than to say that our beauty for all of us, to what degree we have it in the first place, is perishable. It's going away. But there is something that you can do to make yourself beautiful to your husband. There's something that you can do that will make you more attractive to him in your 70s than you were in your 20s. It's a beauty that doesn't fade. And that is... A gentle and quiet spirit. You aren't going to revile. You aren't going to threaten. You aren't going to deceive. You aren't going to get angry. You aren't going to fight back. You are going to submit, be gentle, be calm, be kind. And you are going to do all of that, not because he deserves it, because he clearly doesn't, but because you trust your Father in heaven. He is sovereign and he is good and you trust him. Forget the dirt bag for a minute. You trust him. He is your focus. And so you will live the way that he commands because you have made it your decision to walk with Jesus no matter how hard that path is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter what scars you get along the way, you are going to walk with Jesus Christ because he died on the cross for your sins and he went to Calvary for you and you're going to do some walking in his footsteps for the glory of God. And so that is the adorning that you will put on and in all of that, may God change him. May God change him. May God, through your quiet, gentle, submissive spirit, may you loving him when he doesn't deserve love, may you cherishing him when he doesn't deserve to be cherished, with you being his helpmeet and supporting him and commending him and lifting him up and making him feel good about himself and finding every good thing that you can say in the midst of darkness and dirt and sin, 
That is the best chance you have of leading him to glory, leading him to goodness, leading him to want to walk in a similar way. If you want to change your husband, that is what scripture tells you to do. And this, in God's sight, look at that, God's sight. It's about God. This is very precious. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay, let's wrap this up. Verse 5. This is how the holy women who hoped in God. In all of this little expression in these last few verses, there is one phrase that stands out more than any other. There's one phrase that I think is so central to the whole of this passage. It's here in verse 5. Hoped in God. Isn't that great? Why were these women in Old Testament times, why did they have quiet spirits? Why did they have gentle spirits? Why were they respectful? Why did they behave well even when it wasn't conducive, their environment, to behaving well? Why? Because they hoped in God. Because there was, remember, hope means assurance. God has something better for them. Honestly, if you sin in response to your husband's sin, you're not punishing your husband so much as yourself because you're losing out on treasures of glory, rewards for eternity. You're giving him a great opportunity to get some treasures for glory if he responds to you correctly. They hoped in God. That's the bottom line. Do we hope in God? And so their adorning is their submission to their husbands. And then there is the example of Sarah obeying Abraham and calling him Lord. And I had Neva read that for us this morning in Genesis 18. And I just, I'm not going to turn there now because we're out of time. But just by way of reference, I want you to understand this. The context is Sarah's disbelief. Sarah being told she's going to be pregnant. And what did she do when she was told she was going to be pregnant in her old age? <laughs> she laughed at God. In other words, Sarah wasn't being good, Sarah, at that point. And yet, in the midst of that, what does she call Abraham? Lord. Now, I'm not starting a campaign whereby you should call your husband's Lord. If any of the husbands insist on that, just let me have a chat with them. We'll, we'll, we'll put them straight. Um, Submit in the meantime, but we'll, we'll put them straight. Um, no, obviously there is a cultural element to that. Um, and in the same way that maybe you're in a workplace and you don't, you don't call your boss boss, you call them by their first name, but they're still your boss. And here is the situation. I think very deliberately they've pointed us in Genesis, he's pointed us in Genesis to a situation where Sarah isn't, you know, in a good situation, she's struggling, she's laughing and what have you, but nonetheless, even in that situation, she still recognizes Abraham's authority. In each and every situation. They're pointing us deliberately to an extreme. And so, her calling him Lord doesn't mean that you get to put your husband on a throne and call him king or anything. It simply means that when you're in a situation of disbelief and struggling and hardship and suffering or anything, that there is still that acknowledgement of his position and the respect that goes with that. Why? Because your hope is in God. 
and you are her children if you do good. We talk about being the children of Abraham uh, if we have faith. Kids are taught that, aren't they? Father Abraham and many sons. Do you know that one? Many sons have Father Abraham and I am one of them and so are you and all of that. So I'm not going to sing anymore because I'm not very good at that. But anyway, the point is, is that we learn very early on that we are the children of Abraham if we have faith like Abraham. Yes? That's how we are. And he's making the same point here. Ladies, you're children of Sarah if you have faith like Sarah. How did Sarah express her faith? By adorning herself with her conduct, respecting her husband, submitting to him, having this quiet, gentle spirit, that doing that because of her hope in God, and in doing that, she was doing good. And if you do that, then you are a child of faith as well. It is pointless being a woman who is married, who, you know, reads your Bible, knows your Bible, goes to church, does whatever else religious things that we do, and claim that you are a person of faith, when, where the rubber hits the road, you don't do what God says. Your expression of faith is seen most clearly in this kind of situation. If your husband is all sweetness and light, if he never speaks to you harshly, if he always puts you before him, and if he's just this all-round walking on water, halo on his head kind of husband, first of all, I don't believe you, but let's say he is, for argument's sake, then it's not a challenge to submit to him. In fact, it's not submission at all. It's normally it's, it's agreement. It's when he sucks it's when he makes bad decisions. It's when he puts himself first. It's when he raises his voice. It's when he is impatient. It's when he does all of those things and more that your faith, that you get to see how strong your faith is in God. Don't, don't, doesn't matter what your husband, it's got nothing to do with your husband. He is simply a vehicle that God is using to expose how much do you hope and trust in God. God is sovereign. He could stop your husband being that nasty in a split second. God is sovereignly allowing it for your good to expose your heart and your faith and your trust and your hope. And how you respond says everything about how you view God and nothing about how you view your husband. And then it ends with this expression, which is absolutely fascinating. Do not fear anything that is frightening. The typical Greek word for fear is used in verse 2 where it is translated respectful. Some old versions will say Fearful and pure conduct. And, and we have problems because when we think of fear in a husband-wife situation, we might think of a husband sort of being physically threatening and a wife being in genuine fear. But it's more fear in the sense of respect, fearing God. The fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom, that kind of thing. That acknowledgement of authority and, and what have you. And so I think the versions correctly translate it as respectful. The word here is a different word for frightening. And it's used here because it really is trying to talk about something that is frightening. 
And what it's saying is this. You show your faith. You're, become a ch- you're a child of Sarah. You're expressing your faith. You're showing your faith. If you do what's good, that's the, that's the spirit that is quiet and gentle. The behavior that's respectful. The submission. Okay? And you don't fear what is frightening. For any one of us to have a situation, to have a covenant that's an unbreakable covenant where we have to do what another sinner tells us to do, where we have to trust our lives to somebody who might be very selfish, where we have to trust our lives to somebody who may have changed significantly from when you first knew them, that we have to entrust ourselves, that we are tied to, that we can't escape from someone who, has, who is not someone that at this point we might want to be with. That's scary. That can be really frightening. And I do not want anything I say today, I'm going back to where I began, to belittle that in any way, shape, or form. But what's the command in the face of fearfulness? But if I submit to him, he's going to keep behaving this way. But, it, but if I have this gentle spirit, if I don't say anything, if I, if, you know, he just gets away with it. And, and what, what about the, you know, there's all of these things. Do not fear. Don't be afraid, God says. I'm with you. What did Jesus do? Do you think it was scary when he was spat on? When he went to the trial and this kangaroo court convicted him and sentenced him to death when he was whipped and then later on, afterwards, he's brought out, he has his clothes torn up and given as lots when people are mocking him, when he's scourged, when, when those... The, 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 the flays of the whip with bits of rock and even nails tied to it ripped the skin off his back and dug into his muscles and, and just left him an absolute wreck and the pain seared through his body. Do you not think he might have been a little scared? Do we not understand what was in Christ's heart as he sweated blood in Gethsemane and said, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. What do we do when things are frightening? We do not fear. We do what Jesus did. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. God is sovereign and God is good. Your entire life needs to be based on those words. You need to have those truths just buried so deep within your heart that whatever is thrown at you, he's sovereign, he's good. I'm going to entrust myself to him who judges justly. My hope is in God. May I walk as you command me to walk. It's not easy men or women, being in a marriage when the other person is not walking according to the word. But the issue of what we do in response to it is not unclear in scripture. It's very clear. I think we made it clear, did we not? But it's not easy. So be ready. He's sovereign, he's good. Entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Hope in God. Be ready. And be committed.
the answer really to this next question, and maybe I'll end with this next week as well for the guys. The answer to this question is really the bottom line. Have we decided to please God, whatever that means, to follow him wherever he leads? Or are we going to do what's right in our own eyes, assuming that God concurs while surrounding ourselves with religious, christian easy paraphernalia, words, what have you, to give the Christian effect and appeal? Are we really prepared to be disciples? These are the situations that tell us the answer. My prayer is simply this. If you are a woman and you suffer in this way, at any point, for however long, to whatever degree, my prayer for you is twofold. Firstly, that God might relieve your suffering. And we'll be working towards that next Sunday (laughs) when we deal with husbands. But uh, more than that, I pray that God would show you your heart, show you your faith, and you might be committed to him more than ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, how hard it is to be. To be your disciple. To take up our cross. To deny ourselves and to follow you. But may we be those people. Husbands and wives, men and women, young and old. And may we trust you. Trust that you know what you're doing as we feel the nails, as we feel the whip, as we feel the trials of the fire that we walk through. May we trust you. And may you build and mature and purify our faith that we might bring glory to your name by living distinctive, illogical, holy lives. For your glory we pray this. Amen. Amen. 